Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to see uh, some new faces here. I see lots of families here, um, no doubt associated with some of the more momentous events we've been experiencing this past uh, week or few. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew Murdoch. I'm one of the elders here with Jacques, and um, it's a pleasure to, to be here this morning and to, um, to share the word that I'm going to share. So, <clears throat> as you can see there on the screen, I'm going to be preaching through Esther. The, t- the message is titled, um, Esther and the Providence of God. Um, if you wanted to be more fancy, it would be uh, the providence of God in Israel's post-exilic history um, through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. But um, the long and the short is that this message is about the providence of God. And I'm going to get to that in a moment and explain what I mean by that. Um, But really what prompted this sermon is that the the end of last year, we ended with asking ourselves the question, what is God doing? And through the sermons and and the words that were brought and, and the things that we looked at towards the end of last year and the start of this year was to try and take a break from whatever it is that we were doing, wherever we've been looking and doing, and say, well, what is God doing? We heard um, Diabia preached uh, through the life of Jesus and saying, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing, which then prompts us to ask the question, well, what is the Father doing? Um, At the same time, this prompted a second question in me. You can go to the next slide there. Um, Well, what has God been doing? So, where I found myself when I was thinking of that question was to say, well, man, if I think of the past two years, it's been very strange. It's been um, a unique time in history. It's not like it was just a small thing, um, whatever went on in the past two years in all its facets, whether it was COVID and all that stuff and all the implications of that or locally in South Africa, all the history that we've been through locally in the past two years, um, politically or uh, socially, a lot has been happening. And when I thought about those things, I'd looked at a lot of places. I'd read a lot of opinions and thought leaders and this, what this one's saying and what that one is saying. And I was familiar with what that leader was doing and this president was doing that um, and trying to actually understand what was going on. I think all of us were trying to understand, trying to have a sense of, what, what's the deal? What is going on? Um, and I'd be very, very surprised if any of us came to a, an overall decisive answer on that. Um, so I started asking myself this question. So, you know, in light of that, what has God been doing? You know, what's God's take on all of this? What, what has he been doing? Is it just a, you know, just a cycle of life that he's just observing um, is it of no interest to him? Is it? W- and some of you guys might have thought of that, but I certainly hadn't when I when I had to try and answer that question for myself. Um, and at the same time, I was reading through Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. Um, and these books are, are are really books that are very clear and and relatable stories of God working in. Um, sovereignty over and through the events of man. 
Those stories, um, you, know, you know, the Bible is full of the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. But these stories I found really illuminating um, in, in showing how that happens. How does it play out? So we're familiar with the sovereignty of God, perhaps. That's the idea that, well, it's, it's, it's the theological truth that he is over and above. In terms of authority and reign, he is over and above any other power. He's at the top. There's no one above him who can tell him what to do. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's his sovereignty. Now, God's providence is when he acts from that place. That's how I like to think of it. His providence is when he, as sovereign, intervenes and does something in man, in man's life, whether it's in your life personally, um, or on a, like a global scale, or a national scale. There have been times in history, and it's, Scripture is full of that, and even after Scripture, there are times in, and examples in history where we've seen God acting in, in, in His sovereignty, and that's the providence of God. So that's what we're going to be looking at um, this, through this series. So what I'm not going to be doing is laying out, is answering that second question. <laughs> Unless somehow God gives me a massive revelation before the end of the series. But um, many of us would maybe have an idea of what God is doing in us personally the past few years, two years, or or a bit longer. Maybe what he's doing in the church. Maybe what he's doing here or there. But what I really want to do in this series is zoom out a bit more. What has God been doing in his global church? What has God been doing in the world? Where is the hand of God and what is it doing in all the affairs of this world, and as I said, I mean, there's actually no shortage of people getting up to tell you exactly that. Um, whether they're always right, I don't know. I don't think so. Many get up and say, "Oh, the church, this and that," but um, it's always interesting for me because when you're saying, "Oh, the church is this and that," are you talking about your church? Are you talking about the church in India as well? Are you talking about the people who've been getting persecuted for their faith in Pakistan as well? Many have risen up over the past two years to say. This is what is happening. Um, almost self-appointed prophets. Um, and they might even be right on some things, but for the people of God, where we want to be looking is at the hand of God. We want to be looking for the hand of God and hearing from Him. Um, not taking our counsel with men. Um, <clears throat> so these stories, the, the um, Esther is in a time of Israel's history um, and has a very gripping and instructive account of God's providence. They are, in many ways, political stories, cultural stories, lots of things happening um, in, the, in the history of Israel which can be very instructive to us. And the reason they are so instructive is that they are so relatable. So if we go through Scripture, we might not easily be able to relate to a time in, in Israel's history, for example, when they were under the King David who was a godly king, and he ruled the nation like that, is kind of difficult for us to relate to. We've never really been in that situation um, where God is reigning over a group of people through the king. Um, time in Egypt may be a bit more relatable, but in Israel's history, there's a time where they go into exile to Babylon. And I would say that for us, that is the most relatable aspect in the Old Testament for us. Israel is scattered all over the earth. They're in Persia, Babylon, some are in Egypt, some sort of stay behind in Israel. They're all over the place. But it's a time in Israel's history where they aren't 
anymore, actually. They are under the rulership of secular pagan rulers who are doing things. And, and then how do the Israelites respond in these situations? So you've got a couple of heroes there. Daniel is particularly um, bold in his time in Babylon, and, and God works mightily through him during that time. Um, so that, that, that's why it is so relatable to us. But when I was preparing for this, I saw, if you're anything like me, even though I've preached a few times, actually when I read this, I realized sometimes I look at scriptures it's like a bunch of stories, or I'm not even aware of, like okay, Jonah, where, where does that take place? Esther, where does that take place? In which part of Israel's journey are we when these things um, take place? The prophets, how do they fit in? Who are they talking to? Are they talking to us? Are they talking to people of that day alone? Are they talking to both of us at the same time? Um, I think uh, most of us might struggle to answer those questions. So when I was preparing for this, I thought we would stand to benefit from a little journey through history um, to the point of Esther um, so that we can better understand it. Um, And in preparation as well, I realized you actually can't get to Esther unless you do Ezra and Nehemiah as well. Those are all in the same period of Israel's history. So I was pleased to find out, Juliet, that Esther is one of your favorite books, but I don't know if we will even get to Esther today. Uh, we might only finish Ezra and Nehemiah. But it's going to feel probably a bit like a bit of a history lesson. Um, but as God says in his word, all these things were written for our instruction. Sometimes you read scripture like a highlights package. Like you've watched the highlights and you think you, know, you understand the game and everything that's happened. <laughs> but when Ezra captures letters from King Artaxerxes and Nehemiah captures letters from the, the other people that were opposing him, like political correspondence almost, we don't really see the importance of that sometimes. You know, Nehemiah, we probably know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Yes, amen. Like, what is, what is that set in? And even the, that well-known scripture of Jeremiah, I know the plans that I have for you, to prosper you, not to harm you. What is the context of that? Um, so today, we're going to just take it slow. We're going to work through history, and hopefully it builds a good foundation for us to understand Esther. And throughout these stories, we're going to be reminded of the providence of God. Remember, that's him acting as a sovereign. But what's also true in these stories is it's not that man sits back and powerless. God, many times, when he's worked providentially in Israel's history and through time, there's been a cooperation from his servants. He's used his servants who have cooperated with his will and cooperated with his leading, and mighty things have come about. Um, So we'll get into all of that, but I think I put some effort into taking nice pictures from our children's Bible, um, just to liven it up for us a bit, but we're going to take a nice journey through time. Okay, so the next slide. Creation. I hope it's clear enough there. If you can't see, you can move forward. But um, So creation, that's where it all starts. You've got Adam there, the animals in Eden. Everything is perfect. Um, then the next slide, we've got the fall. We've got Adam and Eve there in the garden and the serpent um, in his cunning and craftiness. This is a very important part in our history. Without this, the gospel doesn't make sense. This is when man fell from perfection, perfect union with God, into sin. Because he chose to disobey God. 
I see we've got a springbok there as well. Um. <laughs> and then soon after the fall, yeah, we see Adam and Eve with some clothes on as well because they grew aware of their nakedness. Having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became aware of their nakedness. And then God actually had to sacrifice an animal to give them clothing. Also very important in our understanding of the gospel. And they were driven from the Garden of Eden. And um, I, don't, I think this is helpful. Many politicians promise Eden, um, I've found in my short 34 years. But no, none of them can actually deliver on that. The fact of the matter is that we will never reach a utopia on this earth apart from God restoring the new heavens and the new earth. So when man was driven from the Garden of Eden, God said, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to make it. Work is going to become hard. Bearing children is going to become hard. It's going to be a, quite a tough ride. Um, that's sobering for us, but it's also helpful for us. And then we also know that we don't fall for uh, shallow promises from anyone who's promising to deliver an Eden on earth who is not God. Um, then we fast forward a bit. Then we have Noah. It's still early days of, of the earth. Um, and then we have the flood. Again, wickedness increased and God destroyed the earth by water. And Noah's ark, and that was, Noah was actually in the ark for more than a year. So that's also just interesting there. I'm just going to, I'm going to be doing some timelines this morning because, especially if you, if you read Mark, for example, it's immediately they did this, and immediately they did that, and immediately then they went and did that. But if you read Luke's account, it wasn't exactly immediately. It was just the way Mark was speaking. So timelines are important for, for just giving us some perspective. Okay, then after that we had Tower of Babel. Right, man sought to make a name for himself, to build a tower, a tower high up to the heavens. Um, and then God destroyed that. Then we have Abraham. So Abraham is the father of our faith also. The key figure in the gospel because of his faith. His simple faith in what God was saying. God said, I'll make you a father of nations. He said, okay. Even though I'm 100 years old, I believe you that I can still have a child. God said, that's the kind of faith that I like. That pleases me. You are righteous, Abraham. Um, and that's the kind of faith that commends us towards God as well. Abraham, somewhere in between him and Isaac, and his, having Isaac, there was uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. That got destroyed. I didn't have a nice picture of that, though. So just left that out. But that happened in between. And then Abraham had Isaac, the child of the promise. Before that, he had Ishmael. That's a whole other story. But Isaac was the child of promise um, that God had promised him. Ishmael was sort of when Abraham or Sarah tried to do it by their own means. Um, Isaac found a wife, Rebecca. That's a nice story as well, for, um, especially for a relationship series. That's always a winner, um, that story. Maybe we'll have one of those one day again. Although about all these engagements, that people seem to have got it. So I think we'll focus on other things for now. Um, and then the next slide, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And scripture talks about this as two nations. So Esau there, the more sort of manly one working out in the field. Jacob a bit more of a home boy, likes to be around his mom um, and do stuff around the house. But very crafty. And the long and the short of the story, he cheats Esau out of his inheritance as the firstborn. And then Esau's story sort of fades into the background, and then it becomes the story of Jacob. 
Okay, then Jacob, in all his journeys and running away from Saul, his brother, also has many encounters with God. So we've got there, we know the story about Jacob wrestling the angel. Uh, there's a story where he falls asleep in the desert and he, he sees in his dreams and his visions a stairway up to heaven and angels going up and down. Somewhere in that story, God, he has many encounters with God and God says to him, Jacob, your name is Israel. I'm changing your name. You are now Israel. And so Jacob becomes the father of Israel in a sense. Because he then has 12 sons who are the 12 sons of Israel. Reuben, uh, all the guys. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Ephraim, Manasseh, Judah. uh, But they're lots. They're 12. I actually read them this morning. Um, But his favorite of the bunch is Joseph. Uh, Sorry, yeah. So on this slide we've got Joseph. He was the last born, um, a bit of a favorite with Jacob, and he gave Jacob his very uh, colorful coat and showed a lot of favor to him. And Joseph also then had these dreams about his brothers bowing down to him, which didn't go down well with them, and they became very jealous of him. No doubt that was also probably a long development, that growing resentment towards Joseph, uh, jealousy, and so on. In the end, they decided, let's... um, Let's kill him, and then I think Reuben intervenes and says, no, let's just sell him to these traders who come past. They take his coat, dip it in blood, and take that back to Jacob and say, sorry, he's been devoured by a lion or something. And then Joseph goes to Egypt. Next slide, Joseph in Egypt. He's got a cool hairdo from the Egyptians over there up at the top of the stairs. That's Joseph. Um, And that's also a very, very interesting story. Actually, Fred von Pfeiffer told me about how Joseph was the first actually, which really blew my mind. Um, but Joseph, Joseph saves up. He gets Egypt to save up for the lean years and, to, uh, and basically you know, carries Egypt through a famine. At the end of the day, all the nations around Egypt have to come to Egypt to actually survive. In that, uh, Joseph's brothers also come back to Egypt. And for a long time, they don't realize that this guy, second in command to Pharaoh is actually Joseph. And also, long and the short, Joseph shows kindness towards them. And then he says, how is my father? And they go fetch his father, and he comes and lives. Then they all actually moved to Egypt. They moved from Canaan to Egypt. Now, Canaan might ring a bell. That's the promised land that we always read about. That's actually the land. When, when Abraham went from Ur of the Chaldeans, he was living in Babylon. And God said, go away from this place to a place that I'll show you. And he settled in Canaan, in the fertile valleys. Then Israel as a nation grew to 70 people, um, which also is is very interesting to me. When Israel goes to Egypt because of the famine, the whole nation of Israel is only 70 people, which I think is probably about the number of people sitting here now. So if you could imagine, we would be the nation of Israel that goes there. It might not seem very great at the moment. It might not seem like everything God said it was going to be. Nevertheless, 70 people moved from Canaan to Egypt. Um, And then the history progresses to the next slide. While Israel is in Egypt, they actually grow. They really start growing as a nation in numbers. The numbers become so great that the Egyptians start to fear that the Israelites will become a political problem. There are enough of them to overthrow the government and take over. So they oppress them. 
They oppressed them and put them to slave labor to build um, all the stuff in Egypt. Uh, and, and then they go and oppress them even more just to try and extinguish them, to just squash them down even more. But all of this time, God has got his eye on Israel. It's growing as a nation. It's heavily oppressed in Egypt. But God, having his eye on Israel, brings Moses into the world. Moses on the left there, also interesting story. So the edict from the Pharaoh at the time to get rid of Israel was to say that all of the firstborn, all of the sons must be murdered. We don't mind if the women grow in numbers. We can have them as servants or slaves, whatever they were doing with them. But the men of Israel represented manpower, military might, military potential to overthrow Egypt. So they said all the males must be killed. The Hebrew midwives, in a good case example of civil disobedience, said, um, well, they didn't actually say. In secret, they kept some of the babies alive. And then Moses' parents put put him in a basket. His mom put him in a basket and let him wash down the river. Then, interestingly, Moses' sister was friends with, or one of the ladies in waiting for, Pharaoh's daughter. Moses' sister, or Pharaoh's daughter, sees the baby scoops him out and says, oh, this must be one of the Hebrew babies. She has compassion. She too takes on some risk in not going with her father's plans of extinguishing all the males. She has compassion on Moses. And Moses' sister there also says, hey, should I get one of the Hebrew mothers to look after him? And then Moses' sister actually goes and gets her mom to come and look after Moses. So that is also very clever. Um, And there too is some providence. Um, so Moses gets looked after, and then he lives in the courts of Pharaoh for a while. Fast forward a couple of things. Um, after killing one or two Egyptians, he lives in the desert, and God encounters him in the desert in the burning bush. Also a very familiar story. And God says, go, I'm going to use you to take my people out of Israel. So remember, they were started in Canaan with Abram. They moved to Egypt in the famine. God says, I want you to take them out of Egypt again, and we're going to go back there. So Moses and Aaron go forth to the next slide. Pharaoh says, no deal. Um, you guys are not going. Moses performs a few signs and wonders. Anyway, that escalates into the ten plagues. That's also a very familiar story. Hence all the pictures in the children's Bible. Um, and we've got the f- frogs there, top left, the gnats, the locusts, the hail. And the last one is the Passover also a very significant time in history, in Israel's history, and in, to the gospel. And then we have the Exodus. Pharaoh, Moses says, let my people go. After enough plagues and enough trouble, um, the next slide, Pharaoh lets the Israelites go out with Moses to worship in the desert. And they cross the Red Sea. Also a very dramatic story. Pharaoh changes his mind, sends the soldiers after them. They drown, the Israelites are through, and now the exodus has happened. They are out of Egypt. God has taken them out. But then, as we will also know, now they're in the wilderness. It's a journey to where they're supposed to be going, but a lot of stuff happens in the wilderness. Um, Wilderness history is fascinating and super rich, but in short, you've got a lot of miracles. God gives food out of the sky, manna from heaven. 
He provides for them. Their shoes don't wear out. They're there for 40 years, and God sustains them miraculously over and over. At the bottom left there, there's, there's no water to drink, so God says, strike the rock. Moses strikes the rock. Fresh water flows out of a stone. Um, a lot of miracles like that. A lot of wars. So there were lots of other people groups living in that area that also sought to attack Israel. So lots of wars. Um, then also very significantly, there's the giving of the law. Moses there in the right. God calls him up the mountain um, and gives him the Ten Commandments. So that's what we've got over there, also very familiar to us. So the Israelites have a long time in the wilderness. Uh, and God reveals himself and they get to know him. Lots of rebellion, lots of judgment on rebellion, lots of repentance. Um, in the end, the wilderness takes very long. And, uh, and God, because of the disobedience, eventually actually says this generation will not see the promised land. And they actually stay in the wilderness until the generation that came out of Egypt dies off in the wilderness. And then God raises up Joshua and Caleb. Okay, Moses himself doesn't actually go to the promised land. Before they go in, they send spies, that you're also probably familiar with that story. They go in, they see the abundance of Canaan. They see that the people are as giants. Some of the guys bring back some of the grapes. Super abundant land. Um, then the people grow afraid. They don't want to go. Eventually they get it right, and Joshua leads the people into Canaan. Then in Canaan, at the next slide, we've got, they get there. One of the major cities is Jericho. That's also a story we're familiar with. March around the walls, Jericho comes down, and they defeat it. So now Israel is starting to establish itself again in the promised land. Abraham was there. They went to Egypt. Now they're back. Joshua is there, and now they're rebuilding. Okay, then the next slide. So now I'm going to speed it up a bit without the pictures. So then, then Israel is now establishing as a nation, and there's something they need to be able to organize themselves. Uh, so then they go into a period of the judges. So that's your characters like Deborah, Gideon, Samson, and Samuel. So Deborah um, used to sit at the palm of Deborah and give wise counsel. These, these people were used mightily by God for deliverance from their enemies. When Israel was trying to establish Canaan, in Canaan, the um, people that were living there were trying to take them captive and defeat them. These people were raised up to overthrow the Philistines most of the time. Deborah... Um, Gideon, who put the fleece out, God used him, though he was afraid. And they also, small army, put many Philistines to flight. Samson, everyone's familiar with Samson. I've got some nice pictures of him after this. Um, also a very uh, interesting character. He's actually listed in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews, but a wild, wild man. But God uses him. It says God's spirit clothes him with power, and God uses him in whatever form he is to overthrow the Philistines. Um, and the last judge is Samuel, who's a prophet, and he's actually the transition into the king's stage of Israel's history. Okay, So they've been a loosely, a loosely associated group of people. Moses is the leader. Joshua's then the leader. Then the judges are the leaders, and then they actually go to having a king over them. And Samuel is the first one who appoint, anoints Saul to be king. Uh, next slide is Samson there, just showing some of the stuff that he did. Um, yeah, killing lions with his bare hands. Uh, that last picture is, is when they'd gouged his eyes out. He's already been betrayed by Delilah. The Philistines have chained him up and taken his eyes out. God says, oh, he says to God, use me one more time. And then he stands between the pillars and he pushes it down and the whole building falls on all the Philistines and 
Israel is rescued from the oppression of the Philistines. Okay, then the next slide, we are at the kings. Now, there are two phases to when there were kings. Um, is everyone still with me? Not everyone liked history at school. Um, some are very aware of that. That's why I've put lots of pictures in here. Um, <laughs> so then they go into the phase of their history where they have kings over them. Saul gets anointed by Samuel, as I said. He rules them for a while. He's not a great king. Um, then you have David, who is the king. David is, is the king. He, he's the one with the heart after God. God says, a man after my own heart. The warrior who overthrows armies but, and writes poetry. and He's just the, the archetype. Um, Jesus is called the son of David. He is like, in Israel's history, preeminent as, as one of the kings. Um, and he has a son, Solomon, again, through 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and all the prophetic books. There's a lot of um, history there. But that is when there was a united monarchy. So there was one king ruling over all of Israel. Then Solomon has a son, Rehoboam, I think it was. Um, Okay, the next slide, this is a picture of David. Also a familiar story. Slaying Goliath um, with a stone. Solomon has a son called Rehoboam. Who, who is quite foolish. Um, he's, his approach to power is to use it to show how powerful he is. And so in his dealings with Israel and with Judah, he becomes very malicious and oppressive to the point that the kingdom of Israel actually splits. In the north, geographically, you had a northern region that was Israel, in the south, you had Judah. And so the kingdom is actually divided. So we've got a divided monarchy. And that, if you've read 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles, is that whole phase where then Asa, son of Soan, became king and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Josiah, son of this one, came and he did what was good in the sight of the Lord. So that's that whole history. is is at a time when there's a king over Israel and there's a king over Judah as well. Approximately 340 years worth of history, 39 different kings. And just to put the prophets into context, around that time is when Elijah and Elisha were the prophets of the day. Um, Again, that whole history is also God calling his people the whole time, but people rebelling. That's a fascinating journey. And then, enough is enough. So... (laughs) Israel actually really deteriorates throughout those years into idolatry um, and the nations around him. Solomon sort of started that. Solomon started marrying all sorts of women from all over the the surrounding territories, all sorts of religions, and it was a great brought a great compromise in the purity of Israel's identity as a people of God. They wanted to worship God, but they also wanted to worship um, Asherah. And they also wanted to worship Baal. And they also wanted to worship all these things. So, lots of fascinating stories um, in that period of history. But, now and again there was a glimmer of hope. There was a a Hezekiah, or a Josiah, who got in and cut down all the idol temples and burnt them down and, and brought Israel back. But, I suppose the net effect was like a down. There was the odd spike 
but then it was a, just a downward deterioration of the nation of Israel and in its fidelity towards God. So much so that they go into exile. So the idolatry of Israel and Judah leads them to exile. Um, and that is, on the side there you've got Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those are the prophets of that time, warning Israel, saying, you guys need to come back. And in the end, Jeremiah prophesies and says, God is going to send you to exile. You were there with Abram, then you're in Egypt, then he's brought you out again. You're actually going to get taken back to Babylon, where Abram started. Um, and you're going to go into exile. And so that happens in about three phases, over about 140 years. Um, various kings come in, take a whole lot of prisoners of war from Israel, take a whole lot of captives and all a lot of their resources and take them back to wherever they came from. Um, and, but by the end of the three years, enemies have captured all the cities and the territories. They've destroyed Samaria, capital city. Um, and all that's left in Israel, they leave there basically the poorest of the poor. They leave the people who can cut wood, who can work in the vineyards. It's just um, manual labor that they basically leave behind. Uh, the, the last king to do that from Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we'll, we'll, I'll, we'll read through Jeremiah's prophecy just now about how that all came to pass. But Babylon was the last, um, Nebuchadnezzar was the last one. And the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, destroyed the city, its walls, and the temple. Everything that Jerusalem, that Israel was and that they built up was destroyed so that nothing was left. And then other people came in and populated those cities. So the Babylonian kings then actually sent people to go and live there. Um, and so they, they conquered it, took the Israelites out. It still had it. It was still a territory of theirs, so they repopulated it with their own people. Um, so in the next slide, I just want to read that, that story of Jeremiah, or Jeremiah's prophecy. So that's in Jeremiah 25. And it says, The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The words which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He says, For twenty-three years, from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after the other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction, and to make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness. 
the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then after the seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making that land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So, if one was to look at the political events of that day, foreign armies coming to invade and overthrow different territories, um, kind of relevant now, I suppose, um, with what's happening elsewhere in the world. Um, one could look at it at a purely political lens. You could say, oh, it was this, and man was doing this, and Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do this, so that's why he went to Israel and took them in. But with the books of the prophets, Jeremiah prophesies this beforehand, and it plays out exactly like that. This gives us an insight as the people of God into God's providence. God actually says there at one point, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. I use him. Not that he has a heart towards God, but God uses him as an instrument to do what he needed to do in the nation of Israel. Then later on he says, when that time is done, Nebuchadnezzar is also going to fall because they're a wicked, wicked nation. But in all these things, God is the orchestrator. God is sovereign over that. And then he acts providentially in that. He stirs up Nebuchadnezzar. He stirs him up to do all these things. Um, And the amazing thing is that Jeremiah prophesies that, and that's how it happens. Um, So, as I said, over 140 years, all of Israel ends up in Babylon. Now we're getting close to the story of Esther, but not quite. Um, That was just a a little history trip. So maybe just say hello to the person next to you just to make sure you're not sleeping. There you go. I hope that wasn't too bad for the straight sixes. Um, I don't know. In my day, that was everyone who, who did the straight six subjects, no history, no geography, no just the science, the hardcore stuff. But um, all those not geared for history. I hope that was all right. So that was a linear history. We've actually been following it linearly through time. What's confusing about the book of Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah is that those books are not listed chronologically. Ezra is the first book. Okay, so before that, there are also other books of the Bible, which we won't go into now and where they fall in, but there's Ruth um, and Boaz and all that story and so on. There are a couple of other stories in the Bible. But in terms of the chronology, Abraham out, goes to Egypt, Joseph and them. They get out of Egypt with Moses, go to the Promised Land, go back to so with Joshua, then get sent out of there again to Babylon. And now this is the point at which, um, you know, up until this point, 
God's interactions with his people have been very direct. Through the prophets, it's actually very clear. They are still, to an extent, a nation that identifies as the people of God. Um, I suppose in their mind there was that idea of a theocracy. Even though the kings were evil, they might have had an idea that they were appointed by God. So a loose identity as the people of God. But as I said, that deteriorated. And when they go into exile, they lose all of that. Now they're just, now they're just Israelites in someone else's country. They're just exiles. Somewhere there, no special status, no special, um, yeah, status or status, um, and they're just people scattered all throughout the Babylonian Empire, which was massive. But then, in soon after. That they in exile, as Jeremiah prophesied, for 70 years. For the people who went last, maybe it was about 50 years. But there too, I mean 50 years, that is a long lifetime. A lot of people would have died during that time of the nation of Israel who'd heard these prophecies, then they die, and then it comes to fulfillment only after that. Um, 70 years is quite a long time in history. But the story of God is carrying on. You know, when the nation goes to exile, it's not like God's given up on them or that the story stops. It just takes a different turn. <clears throat> so, 70 years after the exile, after Nebuchadnezzar took the, law, the, the people from Israel to Babylon, Cyrus of Persia rises up and he overthrows Babylon. So yeah, we see that thing that we sing of all the time in worship. Nations rise and fall. You are the ancient of days. Nations come and nations go. This is literally how it is. Um, Cyrus of Persia overthrows um, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, and he takes him captive, also according to God's prophecy. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied that, that when Nebuchadnezzar's time was up, he would also be overthrown. And then Cyrus makes a proclamation. But I, well, before we read that proclamation, I want to just make sure we understand that it, Israel's identity is different now. It's no longer, we are the people of God. And this is where I find it super relatable. You know, for us, it's not like we have a Christian government or a, like our society, by, to all um, intents and purpose, purposes, is not a it's definitely not a Christian society. There might be remnants of a time, you know, remnants of the Reformation that have carried through in our law and even in the way we think and in Western culture, but we, we are not a Christian nation. The world is certainly not led by Christians. It's certainly driven by pagan, secular rulers, just like Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus. Uh, we are exiles. We are very much in the same boat as Israel was at this time. Some of them had actually were actually high up in office. We'll see later that um, Ezra and Nehemiah both were high up in the government of Persia. But there wasn't that collective identity and of things going the way of the Israelites, just like things don't go the way of the Christians now. Um, so I want us to just be clear on that. Because it makes the providence of God all the more striking. Because Cyrus, in his first year, gets up and makes a decree. And Ezra is documenting this. So now, 
It says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. Okay, before we go on, we see there, Jeremiah prophesied it, the Lord stirred up Cyrus. Cyrus is not a believer, Cyrus is not a Christian, he's not an Israelite. Um, God stirs him up to carry on the, God's plan. Um, and he makes a proclamation, a very surprising one, surprisingly benevolent towards the Israelites. Um, so before we go to proclamation, it says there that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So what was that word of the Lord? We already saw Jeremiah's prophecy that the exile would happen and they'd be there for 70 years. Now the 70 years is up. What was supposed to happen after that? Let's go back to Jeremiah. What did he say? He said in Jeremiah 29, he was still, by this stage, some of the people had already been exiled. And so he writes a letter to them. And he says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem and Israel and Judah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. There's that scripture on all the coffee mugs. Um, but how beautiful is the context? How rich is the context of that scripture? Um, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. That's the Lord's promise. What do you know? Cyrus, when it's his turn to reign, gets up. And that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. You can, sorry, go to the next slide there. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. He decreed it like legislated it. This. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he, he really just about had. Persia was massive. It was like from, I'll show you a map next week, but it was from India to like Egypt. Um, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Very surprising. Whoever is among you of all his people, again, 70 years later, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then, then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred, to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And at that point, almost the Israelites then that are in Persia that decide to go back under the decree of Cyrus are about 50,000 people. Um, so, so this is all in Ezra. Ezra is documenting this history. And now the story really changes gears 
in a way. Um, what really starts to become clear in the Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther story is God's providence, as we've already seen, but then also his people's cooperation with that providence to bring about God's will. Um, <clears throat> so Cyrus decrees it, people go back and they start rebuilding. Now, I'm also going to, also for the sake of clarity and... Um, Ish, I don't know why this text is moving around like that, but it's fine. Um, we need to have a timeline in our minds. That we, otherwise, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are all going to be very confusing. So, Cyrus. Persian rulers, we've got Cyrus. He's the one who just made that proclamation. He rules for nine years. Then you've got someone called Cambyses, who is a super tyrant, and he rules for nine years. Then you've got Darius the first. He reigns for 35 years. Then you've got Xerxes the first, or sometimes called Ahasuerus, he rules for 21 years, and then Artaxerxes I reigns after him for 40 years, and then, you know, they carry on. But you've got almost like, I don't know, what's that, almost 100 years worth of Persian rule there. And against that backdrop of Persian rulers, God is doing this work with Israel, bringing the exiles back. Remember, people like us, no national identity in the way that it used to be, he brings them back. Okay, so in the first year of Cyrus, he sends, makes the decree, and then people go back, and then they return and rebuild. Um, the rulership changes twice before the temple is actually complete. Why is that? So it was very exciting. God's on the move again. People are going back to Israel. We're going to rebuild. Then everything just goes according to plan, and the temple's built, and everyone's happy. No, 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 no. Again, this is a political story. So, within that time, it's not long. And by this time, Ezra himself is not actually back in Israel yet. He's just sent people. Ezra is, is high up in the government of Persia. Um, I think. But he sends the Israelites back, the 50,000, and then they start. Remember, but remember... When the Israelites were taken out, the Babylonians put other people back in there. And there were some Israelites who stayed behind, and there were some Samarians that were kind of, sometimes wanted to be Israelites, sometimes wanted to worship other gods. So there were people there. And now 50,000 Israelites are coming back and saying, okay, we're going to rebuild our temple. It does not go unopposed. The people there, obviously it's a threat to their political economic might. If this nation comes here and starts wanting to take over. Then we read something that we're probably very familiar with. Then, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. I don't know if that seems relatable. Bribing counselors. I'm sure we've never heard of that. Um, but what I love about it, it kicks off the providence of God. You think it's going to be fireworks now. But his people must carry it out. So they go and they carry it out, and then it hits many speed bumps. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah with intimidation. They wrote letters back to the government and said, no, this, and tried to persuade them that this was a threat. And they intimidate the people and got 
um, counselors in on it so that, I love that word, to frustrate their purpose. They just couldn't carry it out. Um, under Cyrus's rule, under Cambyses' rule, and then until Darius, the king of Persia, the work on the temple had stopped. But then, and this is also very interesting, sort of, I don't know, how many years was it that they stopped? It was about... So in the second year of Darius I, Haggai and Zechariah are the prophets of the day. And now they say, now it says here, and Ezra brings this account. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So the work had stopped because of intimidation and corruption. The prophets came in and they encouraged the people again. And then they got moving. And then they finished the temple eventually. So that was a 20-year 20 20 year journey from, you can go to the next slide, when they returned under Cyrus to the temple's completion was 20 years. But they didn't just have a temple to rebuild. What about the walls? What about the rest of the city? You know, where were the people supposed to live? How are we supposed to defend ourselves now? Now we, you know, we've, we've come back and we've pushed people out and made a place for ourselves as the nation of Israel according to the province of, providence of God and under the leadership of Israel and the cooperation from everyone around him. Um, now we're obviously a threat to the people around us, so you have to build the wall. You have to get the rest of it going. And so that, that is, becomes a very long process. And so um, from when the temple is complete to when the walls are complete is a long period of time. They, they do start, but somewhere in the reign of Artaxerxes the first, they actually stop. Artaxerxes stops it. The people of the land convince Artaxerxes that this is a political economic threat. You need to stop this. He says, oh, let's stop it. Um, so that duration of time from when he stops it and when the temple's complete is more than 50 years. And somewhere in that 50 years, when Xerxes is king, is the story of Esther. Okay. So that's where, that's where we're going, Esther. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Esther will just seem like a cool story unless we understand this. Like Esther, we're all familiar with, the, for me at least, that scene, you know, the one that, the climax of that movie where she goes into the chamber and the king extends his scepter. It's like, oh, which is a very significant part of the story, but there's just so much happening in the story of Esther. Um, and it's the providence of God, and we can already see that providence of God and the cooperation of his people. Under Ezra, um, then, next slide. So it's just the same slide. I've just moved the timeline on a bit. At this point, like almost 70 years later, or at least 70 years later, Ezra actually only goes to Jerusalem. He sent the Israelites in the meantime, but now they've been living there for almost 70 years. Again, that's actually a really long time. And 
you know, in exile, it's not like the law, all that stuff that, it in, that they'd inherited from Moses, you know, the law was also part of the identity. It was like, this is what makes us distinct. In, when you're out scattered in Persia, that was not very prominent or at the forefront of their minds, I wouldn't think. Um, because the, the mechanisms which facilitated that, the festivals, the gatherings, the, all the things that kept pointing them towards that were non-existent. <clears throat> So, Ezra at one point goes back to where all these guys had gone to teach them the law. That's also, so that's an interesting story that you can read in your own time, but the, he is a teacher, and a, like in a bit of an, a, a sort of a government official, he goes there and he teaches them, he's a very passionate guy, he teaches them the law, they realize how far they've fallen, they repent, and he calls them back to covenantal faithfulness. He says, yes, we're on this journey, God's brought you back, but now... Unless you want to end up back in Babylon in 50 years' time, we have to remember this God we serve. We have to, we have to, we have to come back in faithfulness to Him. So Ezra goes to Jerusalem, um, and then the next slide there, the scripture pointing to this is in Ezra seven, and it says, "Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of then there's a lot of son of son of son of son of Aaron." The chief priest, that's also telling, you know, he's a direct descendant of Aaron, who was there at Moses' right hand. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. The king granted him all that he asked. Also, unusual, except for the providence of God. God working on the hearts of those kings. Okay, next slide. We'll just carry on with the um, timeline. Almost done. Okay. Ezra goes to Jerusalem, as we just read. And he reads what the Lord has said, and he brings Israel back to covenantal loyalty. Thirteen years later, Nehemiah comes on the scene, and he goes to Jerusalem. And we'll read that in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2. And he's there for 12 years. And then they finish the wall. So many, many, many years over which this restoration takes place. Many obstacles. Um, but these leaders especially endure. And under the encouragement of the prophets, God's purpose gets carried out. It might have been slow in coming or slower than some expected, but it gets carried out. Um, so I, I won't read through Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 but I'll summarize it but he was a cup, cup bearer to the king so he was also Nehemiah was an Israelite very high up in the government of Persia just like Daniel was in Babylon God has his ways of even when we are exiles in a foreign land he can exalt us to places that we wouldn't think we might not even think we should be there you know what's a Christian doing being a leader in Babylon well ask Daniel Ask Nehemiah. He's a cupbearer to the king in Persia. But all of these people, you can see, are ready to be used by God. It's many years. They might not know why they're there, but they're faithful to God. They're faithful in their generation. The time comes, God uses them. Um, so Nehemiah gets a report that Israel, um, the city is still in tatters. It hasn't really come together. The temple's there, but everything else is still a bit of a mess. And he's heartbroken. He fasts and falls down in prayer and he repents on behalf of Israel. He says, Lord, 
you are faithful. This, this, you are faithful. This has come about because of us. Our unfaithfulness has brought this about. I'm sorry. We are sorry. And he, and he repents on behalf of Israel. Um, and he's very forlorn and sad. But then at the end of his prayer that I'll just read there is he's praying to God. And he says, um, talking about Israel, They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, that's him, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, this man being Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah knows that Artaxerxes actually stopped the work in the first place. This really distresses Nehemiah. He doesn't like to see Israel in this state. He's about to go and ask Artaxerxes, if he can go and help them build it. But Octetoxerxes has just stopped it. So, the point being that Nehemiah humbles himself before God and he waits on God. And he also waits on the right time God for, to, to move, to work. He knows he needs to go ask Octetoxerxes for something that would require a lot of favor. Um, but he does it. And he's there in the court and he's bringing the wine to the king. And the king says, why are you so sad? Nehemiah, what's the problem? And he says, oh, my lord, this and this and this. Um, I need to go back. And so he says, well, how long are you going to go for? He says, and then it just says that he gave him a time. And then the king was sitting there with his wife says, okay, you can go. And then Artaxerxes actually appoints Nehemiah to be the governor over Judah for quite a good few years so that he can do this work. So we can go just to the, to the next slide, which is, is almost our last slide there. Um, oh, sorry, not that one. The previous one. Sure, that image didn't. Okay. Um, so the first bullet that you can't see there um, is just really summarizing what I just said, which is that Nehemiah was sent from Persia with the favor of Artaxerxes, but first he sought the favor of God. He prayed, he fasted, he was in repentance towards God, and then he waited on God. God then moves. God hears the prayers of his servants, but we must move with him. So we, to come back to our first question, this is Nehemiah doing uh, like what Jesus was doing in real time. When he says, I only, see what I, I only do what I see my Father doing, that takes waiting on the Lord. It's the same for Jesus, it's the same for us, and it was the same for Nehemiah. God will carry out his purposes through us, but we must wait on him and wait for timing. He couldn't have stormed in there to Artaxerxes and say, you know, we actually are an important people and have stoked up a rebellion against Artaxerxes that would have fallen flat. So he waited for God, for strategy and the how. Um, and as I said, Artaxerxes had stopped the work. Nehemiah now seeks to start it again under his watch. He was cupbearer, as I said, and he was which was quite a, an administrative position. It meant he saw the king probably almost every day. And then he was appointed governor of Judah. He was a bold leader and administrator. Again, when Nehemiah went there, there was more opposition, more political opposition. People didn't want Israel to reestablish. Yet he goes, and Nehemiah's story is very interesting. He's quite a fiery sort of um, guy, very passionate about Israel, about the law. And he and Ezra actually join hands. Ezra's there, Nehemiah gets there, they, they, um, they bring in reforms, like there's been problems with Israel intermarrying with 
pagan nations and that messing up the whole thing. There was unlawful interest being taken from Israelites. They were exacting interest from one another. Nehemiah, and with Ezra as the teacher of the law, they come in and then they're just, in Afrikaans, they like, they just get Israel in order because they were still a bit scattered and out of order. But a very powerful leader and administrator that God used and very bold. Lots of opposition came and lots of slander. Um, you know, they came up with all sorts of accusations. Yeah, Nehemiah is actually this and he's doing this to the Israelites. And he actually just didn't even give it the time of day. He rebutted it, was not intimidated, um, spoke the truth. And also quite exceptional about his leadership was that he was governor and was entitled to certain privileges actually from the Israelites to take in a certain amount of food and resources to just keep himself going. It was a privilege that the governors had. But for him, for that time, he said, no, I'm going to leave that. We don't need that. And he undid all the uh, bad interest laws and all the rest. He was a reformer, a big-time reformer. So getting towards the end, there was a picture there. I don't know what it looked like now, but it's just a picture of the city. Oh, there we go. Um, Temple is up there at the top. And the walls of Israel that have been rebuilt by Nehemiah, then they dedicate it to the Lord and they have a, f- a celebration. They celebrate the Feast of Booths, which was an old celebration they used to do in the desert. Um, and they bring it all back. And so Israel is gaining momentum again. Um, and it's a great joyous occasion. And Nehemiah, he's the guy who tells, in the face of the opposition, says that some of you are going to build with one hand and hold a sword with the other hand. So you're going to work like this because we're ready to to attack anyone who comes against this work. Very bold, very wise, very prudent. Um, and so that's the wall built around the city. In Israel's heyday, that was also a big part of the city. That was another portion of the city um, that didn't get rebuilt at that time. I've never been there. John, I might actually have some very interesting stories um, if you wanted to know more about all of this um, and how it looks today. So... Just in closing, um, so what do we learn from, from all of this? God is sovereign. Yeah, we sing that a lot. We know you're sovereign. We know you're the boss, Lord. We know no one comes against you and succeeds. But when he acts, we must also look for him to act in that capacity, in his providence. You know, whether it's a, a healing, he comes and just reverses the laws of biology. He's got the power and he acts and he gives someone who is born blind sight, you know. Or whether he overthrows Nebuchadnezzar, who's been the fear of Israel and has oppressed them big time. God steps in and he overthrows him. God's providence is always at work, but it takes our cooperation. And what I hope we've done today is to illuminate that. You know, if we, if we want to say, well, what has God been doing? I don't know, but I wasn't even thinking in that direction. Um, up until I was reading this, reading through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Um, and I hope it's the same for you. So we learn that the work of God takes time. Remember that timeline, hundreds of years, and back and forth. It takes place over lifetimes and generations, you know. Thinking of our, our friends who've just come back from India. You've only had two weeks there, you know, to do something. But that, that, that that's... God is at work there. You might not. You might be dead before you see 
the revival in the Himalayas there. You don't know. But if you act in obedience, God's work is pushing forward. God's work is ever going. It's going. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So seek to be faithful with what God has given you. Faithful in your generation. If you don't see the fruits of that in your lifetime, that's okay. We see here from history that that is probably going to be the case. And even the work of God, because his providence works in cooperation with his people, it can peak and trough. You know, their highlights. Even after Nehemiah and Ezra had built the wall and there was great rejoicing, Nehemiah then went back to Persia, as he said, told his governor he would. But then he had to go back to Israel again, because now they were, they were going this way. and they were, So it was a continual thing. So the work of God, even if you look back, you can have these great victorious moments, but then there are these lows as well. But God is patient. You know, God doesn't wipe us out and say, oh, I can never use these guys. I'm just going to scrap them. He's patient. Even if you must wait 70 years for all the Babylonians to, to all of that stuff to happen, then bring out Ezra. Nehemiah. Now let's start again. It's God's providence and our action. He doesn't overrule us. Like, you know, sometimes, yeah, God can work in unexpected ways, but... His sovereignty and his providence doesn't mean that we just sit there and wait for him. He, waits, he wants us to wait on him so that he can use us. And then they were faithful in their generation, Ezra and Nehemiah, and they had a lot of character. Able to stand up to intimidation. I think that's probably, what, that's probably the first thing that comes. And many of us have probably started great projects. We think we've got some, uh, something that God wants us to do. One of the first things that will come is an intimidation to say, no, not you. Or... No, I don't think you heard God. There's someone else. Um, these guys, man, Nehemiah was unstoppable in his boldness, but also wise and able to... Uh, slander is also very powerful. Nehemiah dealt with that. They had a lot of character and a lot of perseverance. So, next week, we will get to Esther... Beautiful Esther in the, in the courts of Xerxes. Um, and then we're going to look at, at, based on this timeline, that'll give us some context to what's actually happening in Esther. So, do join next week for the rest of the story. Juliet, we will be talking about Esther. Um, but, yeah, I hope that you guys are encouraged by this. Um, yeah. I'll quickly pray for us. Father God, you are the ancient of days. From the time of Adam to the time of Nehemiah and to our time today, each one of us, you made us in love and you formed us with foreknowledge, Lord. You predestined us for good works that we should walk in, Lord. And in that, I just pray for each of us here, Father, as we trust in your sovereignty and as we seek to see your providence, Father. I pray that you give all of us wisdom. I pray for those of us who have possibly been intimidated, who have been given a work like Ezra or Nehemiah and have been intimidated into hanging back or intimidated into just stopping short, just like the Israelites were, Father. The intimidation is real and the work can be stopped. But I just pray for, for anyone here who's, who's experienced that, Lord. And I just pray that you would stir them up 
Even as it says here, Lord, you stirred up those people in Persia to go back to Israel and to work on the house of the Lord. By your spirit, would you stir us up again, Father, to rise up in boldness and confidence and to be ready to wait on you, Lord, to wait on you, to see how you would move and that we can move with you, Lord. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you dwell in us. You've not left us as orphans, Father, but you've given us your spirit to dwell in us as our counselor, as our advocate, as our friend. The one who comes alongside to help. And I just pray for that for each of us, Lord. And may we be emboldened to seek your hand. Give us wisdom to see what you are doing in our nation, Father. Give us wisdom to, to see what you're doing in the world in, insofar as you would have us play a role there, Father. Give us wisdom that we may not be... Um, short-sighted, as the Israelites sometimes were, short-sighted. We can only think of the food in front of us and then we can't see anything beyond that, Lord. Give us that vision. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We, we, we ask you to do this work in our midst. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Amen.